The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. It's been one of those days, my friends, and um, five months ago today was another one of those days that you probably look back on and go, is this really happening? Yeah, it was five months ago today that North American professional sports leagues were put on pause because of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was March 12th when the NBA and the NHL stopped play. Well, and we know that they've picked back up, but it was on this day five months ago. In Alberta, large gatherings and conferences were cancelled and three days later, schools were shut down. States of local emergency were declared in municipalities across the province. So as we try to adjust to this new reality, you know, we were watching and trying to learn about this new threat and we continue to learn more about COVID-19 every day. Now, we do know that some sports have returned. Obviously, we are an NHL bubble here in Edmonton. Um, bubble hub. Um, a lot of you are still working from home. I'm still working from home. It's been uh, almost five months and everyone is wondering what back to school will look like in just a few weeks. It has been a wild 153 days and to catch up on what has happened and what is happening, you know, you know what we need to be looking ahead to, we're joined by a friend of the show, microbiologist Jason Tetro, who is also host of the Super Awesome Science Show and author of The Germ Code and and the germ file. Hey, Jason, welcome back to the show. Hello. Five months. Doesn't it seem like five years? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been a while. Um, and, and I love the way that you sort of been bringing up all the different things that we've been talking about. I just happen to call it the ABCs of what it's like to live with a pandemic. A uh, is airway. Got to protect it. Barrier protection. B is bubbles. Got to learn how to live in a bubble. And C is your cohort. You want to maintain your cohort and not mix them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, let's start right there. If it's the ABCs on the Tetro list, airway, protecting your airway, um, we have seen the mask, the mandatory masks be put into place uh, here in uh, Edmonton and in Calgary and some of the smaller communities around. We're also seeing mask exemption cards being handed out. Less than um, half of 1% of the population so far in Edmonton getting one of those. <laughs> some people are saying that that's kind of, you know, making the, the bylaw you know, it invalidates it. Um, masks, when you look around, we're seeing about 80%, 85% compliance right now. Is that good enough? At the moment, we seem to be doing a fairly decent job of it. Um, and, and the thing is, is that while here in Edmonton, we've got sort of um, perspective in our own local community, one of the things that I want to point out is that if you look over in Ontario, which was completely out of control, like we were looking at Ontario going, yeah, I don't want to ever be there, ever. Um, they implemented the, the idea of masks pretty much everywhere, and they've now gone down to the whole province only reporting, you know, a, dozen, half, a few dozen cases uh, per day. So that's what masks do. Essentially, they're protecting the airways, and then after about a two- to three-week period where people are protecting their airways, you're going to have that massive reduction in the number of cases. And can the virus be sustained with only, say, a one-half of 1% of the population not masking up? Well, it's the same idea of vaccination, right? We need to have somewhere between a 97 and 98% vaccination in order for us to be able to stay safe from measles, mumps, and these types of things. It's the same thing. If we have the majority of people masked up, it's going to reduce the chances that we're going to see spread. And eventually, it'll come down to a level where we're comfortable. 
There has been a, a lot of talk about bubbles and cohorts lately, mm-hmm. um, Jason, obviously, with going back to school on the horizon. But as people, I think, starting to maybe loosen up their bubbles a little bit or expand their bubbles a little bit, um, how concerning is that? And do you think there's a bit of complacency right now, given the fact that I think some people think that, well, this is all over and done with? Well, the way I like to look at it is, um, and we're going to talk about cohorts here. When you have a cohort, you're essentially married to a bunch of people. <laughs> and then you're yeah, in yeah. that group, right? And the fact is, is that over time, what ends up happening is that depending on the size of your cohort, depending, you know, the size of your group, you may start to have this interest in going outside of your cohort, Mm -hmm. per se. And you may want to start looking at mixing and sharing with other people outside (laughs) of your cohort. And the fact of the matter is, is that we know this happens all the time. And what's the best way to stay safe? Well, it's to use barrier protection. So if you're going to explore other people's cohorts, then make sure that you're covered up. <laughs> you make me laugh and it's vivid and it was perfect. Thank you, Jason. Um, okay, going back to school, you've seen the play you've seen and heard about the plan that the province has put in place. Some are mm-hmm. saying it's a lack of a plan compared to other provinces. Ontario um, seeming to have a bit more extensive one. BC now saying that they're pushing back the, the restart date. Um, how how c- confident are you or not in, in what you're seeing? three weeks out from uh, kids returning to school? Well, actually, um, it's less about the schools themselves right now and more about what we talked about, what you just brought up at the, very, at the start, which is five months since we um, had sports stop. Well, school stopped at the same time, right? Yeah. And we brought back uh, sports in, in very effective ways for a couple of the sports. So um, when you talk about the NHL, we're doing really, really well. Um, when you talk about uh, soccer, incredibly well. When you're talking about the NBA, incredibly well. When you talk about maybe Major League Baseball, not so much. Not so good. Right. No. So what's the key in this particular case? It's the bubble mentality. And so what we want to do is we want to start looking at how we can maintain our bubbles inside of our schools. And we can do this with NHL teams. We can sure as heck do that with school homerooms. And so when you start thinking about it in that respect, then you start to see how we can develop the right policies to be able to keep kids safe. Now, does that mean that we're ready, that we're at a stage where we've got the infection rate so low that we can start doing this? Because remember, you have to make sure that when you go into that bubble, everybody is either negative or there's almost no virus to be detected. We're not there yet. And that's one of the reasons why BC is pushing back. One of the reasons why Ontario is starting to look at how they're going to be able to do maintenance. And I think here in, uh, in Alberta, we have to, you know, figure out when are we going to be able to open and is it going to be based on the infection rate in the public or is it going to be based on infection rates for each individual bubble? But in order to do that, you need the testing. We need the testing, and we're right now we're we're testing. We're completing about seven or eight thousand tests, uh, you know, every every day. That's producing, you know, let's say on average about a hundred cases. We, it was down to about fifteen. It's creeped back up again yeah. recently. Um, it, you know, given what we're seeing in the results, could can you? 
uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Sure. But c- could you estimate then what the real level of active cases in the province could be? If right now there's just over a thousand active cases in the province, what would it really be if we tested everyone today? Mm-hmm. If you were to take the approach of uh, targeted testing, then you'd be about eight times lower. So you would just multiply that number by eight, so it would be about 8,000. We don't do targeted testing. Anyone who feels that they qualify or wants to get tested can get tested, right? So now it's it's a matter of looking at how many people are simply going to seek out the testing because they have a concern. And when you start looking at it from that perspective, um, it really depends on the type of person, if they believe in the virus, if they believe that the virus can cause problems. And so when you think of it from that perspective, about a third of the population is going to be skeptical of public health measures. And then about two-thirds of the people are going to be um, understanding of that. And then within that group, you're probably going to have some of the people who are very, very concerned to the point that, you know, they want to have a test every day. So when you put all those numbers together and then you come and you look at how many people may actually be getting tested um, when they don't need to versus how many people may have the virus when they're actually not getting tested, you're probably looking at around two to three times more. So if we're saying we've got about 1,000 active cases, it would not be surprising that we have about 3,000 active cases. But at the end of the day, the only way that we're going to be able to identify how severe this is is through how many people are going into to our hospitals with a COVID diagnosis um, and, and, and then just you know, goes to ICUs and, and, and severe cases after that. Um, we don't do that for our kids. So yeah. that's one of the reasons why when it comes to going back to school, it doesn't really matter how many active cases there may be that we've detected or not detected. We've got to take that bubble mentality for our kids. So we really do need to have them, a, a testing mechanism or algorithm figured out before we open the schools. Jason, there still seems to be a lot of, and I, and I guess it's... I don't want to say it's not misleading. It's confusing because we're still learning. This is all still new, right? So we're learning and and, 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 and we're changing advice based on what we know and what we're learning about this virus. When it comes to kids, we had heard it, you know, before that, you know, they, you know, they, they don't get infected as much or that they um, wouldn't transmit as much, all of that sort of stuff. But as we've seen down in the States, as kids go back to school, we're seeing more young people become infected. What do we know for certain about kids and COVID-19? What we know for certain is that kids have ACE2 proteins in their bodies. So that means that the coronavirus can get into them. It can start spreading inside of them. Now, what we're learning, and, and, you know, this is one of the few times where what we found out from SARS back in 2003, we just didn't know. And and so this is new, is how are kids and younger adults going to be able to deal with this particular virus, knowing that they may have come into contact with other types of coronaviruses in the past, and they may have partial immunity. And so we're kind of sitting here going, okay, well, it's not that they're not getting infected, they are. It's not that they're, um, you know, not able to transmit, they are. But how come they're not showing such severe symptoms? And it may have to do with something that we still haven't fully detected yet when it comes to their immunology. 
So when we start thinking about how to, um, you know, send our kids back to school and everything, we can't really think about how it's going to affect them per se because we're still learning how that's going to happen. What we need to think about is what happens if it does get inside of them and then they end up talking to other people who happen to be older who do have more of a risk of becoming infected. And that's where you get this whole concept of super spreaders. And, yeah. and that's really what we've seen before with other types of viruses, uh, including the flu. And so that's really where we need to maintain our focus until the scientists figure out what is going on inside of these kids that's helping them not, for the most part, come down with severe symptoms. Okay, Jason Tetro, we're going to have to do this for the thousandth time on this show. Someone... <laughs> Someone just texted in. I'm going to read it all to you, all right? Okay. Okay, Just so you know. I mean, come on, Jay. A medical-grade mask protects down to one one one-millionth of a meter, and your doctor fraudsters you mainstream media people worship tells you a virus is one one one-billionth of a meter, equivalent to a mosquito going through a chain-link fence. Masks do nothing. You know that, right? (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, that's what people do. Um, but you have so, to, well, the thing is, yeah. is that two things. First thing is uh, size does not matter. It might matter when it comes to your cohort, but it doesn't really matter when it comes to the virus. What matters in this particular case is what is it in? And the Thank virus you. is going to come in what is known as a droplet. And a droplet is going to have a lot of mass. And it's also going to have a lot of size. And that's what's going to get trapped. But the other thing they have to realize is that, especially with the medical masks, they're designed to be able to trap the viruses, not based on size, but based on their electrostatic nature. Viruses are negative charge. And those wonderful masks that they wear are positive charge. So we all know what happens with a magnet. Negative and positive, they attract. It gets caught up into the fibers, and if they're non-woven, it makes it even easier. And then at that point, it's essentially trapped in there, and there's nothing that can be done about it. Don't worry about it. Don't talk about size. You can talk about size with a bunch of other things, just not in this case. So, but with a non-medical mask, though, let's just make it clear. I mean, the virus is in droplets, in the respiratory droplets, which would, not 100%, but would be better contained in a non-medical mask, even a cloth cloth mask, than not wearing one at all, right? So, when you're talking about a cloth mask or any kind of homemade mask, and this has been said numerous times, and it's been on for, like, Years and years and years. I've been talking about it since 2010. It all comes down to layers. And the reason that you want to have those layers is that you're essentially creating a mesh. And that mesh is going to be made of a number of different types of fibers that are essentially going to grab onto those droplets. And again, the fibers themselves are going to intrinsically have a positive charge to them. And so that's going to bring the virus into that mesh and it's going to trap them up. And it's really cool, too, because if you actually do, you know, um, uh, electron microscopic uh, images and stuff like that, you can actually see viruses and you can even see bacteria and other things getting trapped in these fibers. And it's really, really cool. But more importantly, once it's trapped in there, it's stuck in there. And the only way that it's coming out is if you kill it with a soap and water to be able to reduce the charge and then it goes down the sink. 
the importance of washing the masks. Okay, we're almost out of time, uh, Jason and I, I, we always run out of time. Uh, Russia, the coronavirus vaccine that it says is ready to use without going to the third phase of, of clinical trials. Come on. Yeah, well, we're just living like it's 1950 again. Um, that's that's essentially what they used to do. Uh, they they would do phase one, phase two in the laboratory, and then they would go and basically go to some country and do a mass vaccination campaign, and that would be their phase three. What you also need to know is that the same vaccine that they've developed that they're just talking about is also being developed by several other companies, including large pharmaceutical companies. Um, it, it, it's just basically a different approach that's relying on the past as opposed to the present. And to be honest with you, in many cases, sometimes, um, you can get an emergency authorization to do a phase three testing where you're essentially doing more people than what you would normally have figured that you would do. Um, so what Russia is doing is just basically taking advantage of what is necessary in an emergency. Now, the question is, is it going to be effective? Is it going to work? We don't know. That's the only thing that we're going to have to find out. Well, and what the side effects are going to be, and that's part of the, the phase three. I mean, would you get the vaccine right now? Well, I mean, it's an idea. Sorry. Based on what it actually is, yes. (laughs) Because I know the science behind it.